With that said, uh, we are going to hit a really a big topic. I think it's a topic that uh, uh, that uh, everyone probably knows, even those who are non-believers know of the Ten Commandments. Uh, so please open up your Bibles as we continue where we left off last week with Exodus chapter 20, Exodus chapter 20. <clears throat> Called it personal responsibility because at this point in the time, the Israelites are there finding themselves at the foot of Mount Sinai. God himself came down and is rested upon this, this mountain. And there was quite the warnings to them not to touch that mountain. Don't break the barriers that I've asked Moses to set up to keep you there. Because if you come too close, even an animal, then uh, you will surely die. And there was a barrier because there is, God is holy. And, uh, and you just can't approach God however you want to the way you designed it, the way you think you, should, you, 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 you feel like doing. Um, he's a holy God. So I'm going to give you some really good background, I believe, is probably some of the key things that I have heard over the years of regards around the Ten Commandments or the, the law. Uh, the law of Moses many times referred to it is, but it's not the law coming from Moses. This is God's law. That was given to Moses as just a speaker, as a uh, talking head to tell the, uh, the, as a leader, as the pastor of that, uh, the congregation of 2.5 million people there in the desert. Uh, God says to him, you're going to go give this message. This is the teaching that you're going to, the message you're going to give to him. But God himself is going to, as we saw in chapter 19, said it loud enough for them to all hear God directly speak to Moses. So there's no question in their mind. Uh, this this message and who it came from and the warnings and also the law that we will see here today. But the Ten Commandments were more than laws for governing the life of the nation of Israel. It was to govern the life of that person in the, in the nation of Israel. So it was a personal responsibility that they had to take on. They couldn't sit there and say, oh yes, it's for the nation, but that's really for them, not for me. No, no. These are for them personally and personally as part of the nation of Israel, the nation as well as what's to follow the, the, what God was saying. And they are part of this covenant God made with Israel when he took them to himself to be his special people that we saw back there in chapter 6 and chapter 19 of Exodus. Now the privilege of freedom brings with it personal responsibility. Let me say that again. When we have the privilege of freedom, that brings with it a sense of a personal responsibility to use that freedom wisely for the glory of God and for the good of others within the, the society or within the community that you find yourself in or a nation that you live in. God gave the Jews the title deed of the promised land. We saw that back in Genesis when we studied that in chapter 12 and chapter 13. The Abrahamic covenant was established. And here today we'll see Israel is poised and ready and is going to enjoy that promised land to come. And it would depend on their obedience to the Mosaic covenant that we're going to see here. But the sadness is, is that this nation of of uh, came about to disobey and go against the law and they'll be defiling the land and they'll be grieving the Lord so that they had to be chastened because of that. Because of the law that was given to them that we will see they were not willing to take personal responsibility to follow the law. And so the nation as a whole will be chastened by God, be corrected. Now remember, here's some of the key things you have to understand when we talk about the, the law. That the law was never given as a way of salvation. The way of salvation for either the Jews or the Gentiles because by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified, we see in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. Salvation is not a reward for good works. It is a gift that God, through faith in Jesus Christ alone, we see that in Romans 4, Romans 4, 5, and we see that in uh, Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. So we know that you know, salvation 
is not a reward for good works. You can't work your way to salvation. It's a faith in Jesus Christ alone. The law, though, reveals God's righteousness and demands righteousness, but it can't give righteousness. We see that in Galatians 2.21. Only Jesus Christ can give us righteousness. That's our source of righteousness. Putting our faith in him, we receive his righteousness, not through the law. We also know in the scriptures that the law is like a mirror. It reveals where we're dirty. It reveals to us that we need to be washed up. But the law can't wash your face. You can't look in the mirror and the mirror turn around and wash your face. That's not how it works. It just reveals that you need your face washed. We see that in James chapter 1, verse 22 through 25. Only the blood of Jesus Christ can cleanse us from our sin, to cleanse us and to wash our face. God doesn't give his spirit to us because we obey the law, but because we trust in Christ and what he's done for us. Nor does he give us an inheritance through the law. Oh, I have great rewards for you if you keep the do's and the don'ts. The only way or the only thing that a dead sinner like you and I could have or need is a life. And the only way you and I as a dead sinner could get life is not by keeping the law, but only by the fact that we have trusted our life into the life of Jesus Christ. And only Jesus, only God himself can give a person a life, eternal life. There is no other way. So then what is the purpose of the law? It's God's way of showing you and I our sins and stripping us of any facade or any outward act that you are some self-righteousness. It will be just stripped away when you look at the law. It reveals what, who and what we really are. So it just cries out. It causes us to really come to a point in our life when we see the law, looking in the mirror, it will then bring to light that we're sinful men, sinful women who need to be saved. And that any self-righteousness through some pride or through some achievements and titles or whatever you think you can justify yourself is good enough to be able to have eternal life and come into God's presence, that will be all stripped away and it brings us to our knees to cry out for the mercy and the grace of God on our life. That's what the law does. God gives his Holy Spirit to all who believe on his Son, and the Spirit enables us to obey God's will. To obey God's will, therefore, full righteousness of the law will be fulfilled through that. Romans 8, verses 1 through 3. But one of the main ministries of the law, let's call it ministries of the law, was to prepare the way for the birth of Christ Jesus, our Savior. We see that in Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Now this Jewish ceremonial system that we will be studying through the rest of Exodus into Leviticus was fulfilled by Christ himself. But the moral content of God's law still remains. And we will see that nine of the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament epistles for the church, for you and I to honor and obey. The one commandment of the Ten that's not carried over into the New Testament, yes, you probably already know, and that is the uh, Sabbath commandment. It's not repeated, and we can address more of that as we continue here as we take a look at the, the commandments. But all the Ten Commandments deal with our personal responsibility toward God himself because it's a personal relationship that we have with God. 
And we will see, and many times we will take the Ten Commandments and we'll, we'll see them kind of split or we kind of address them in two different tablets. The first tablet, a tablet of four commandments, and the last six are on a second uh, tablet or how we see them. One is focused toward uh, of that God focus or God word look of, of that relationship between you and God. And then the last six is that relationship or that focus on man, how we treat others or how we live and, and interact with others in society. And both how we treat God or how we live for God and how we help and support and live along with our fellow man and woman, that determines a, very much a personal responsibility and keeping track and taking responsibility of how we treat people. Do we love God and do we love others? That is really the simplicity of the two great commandments, as we will see that these Ten Commandments fall under. It's a very simplistic, simple way for some of us to remember the Ten Commandments. Just remember, love God and love others. Those Ten Commandments fit very nicely uh, underneath those. But how we relate to others depends on how we relate to God for if we love God then we will obey him and as we obey him he leads us to be able to love our neighbors and serve them as we should. Now we take a look here now in these personal responsibilities that you and I should take note of. First of all here in Exodus chapter 20 verse 1 it starts off by saying God spoke all these words saying Right from the very beginning, this is not Moses' opinions, the ten opinions for Moses. This is not the top ten ways you can do book that you, they read. This is not the, I saw my counselor and, the, and my counselor gave me top ten things I should be looking at to get in touch with myself. This is not how it is. God spoke these words to the people directly to take heed. And they're true and they're final. I mean, that this is it. There's not room for negotiations here because of the source who we receive this from. So the following laws were not invented at Mount Sinai because most part, most of them were simply clearly given all the way back from the time of Adam. The Bible tells us that the law is holy and just and good, Romans 7, 12. So some people have this opinion, I just, uh, who needs to even think about the Ten Commandments? They're not applying to me today. That's the Old Testament. But we know that this is very clearly in the New Testament in Romans noted that the law is holy, just, and good. So it tells us that every good and perfect gift comes from God as we see in James. And these commandments are good gifts because they come from God directly for Israel, and for humanity as a whole that's communicated here at Mount Sinai. These Ten Commands can also be summarized, as Jesus summarized these, in Matthew chapter 22, verses 35 through 40. When this lawyer approaches him, if you remember, this lawyer approaches him and he asks Jesus a question, and Jesus and he says, Teacher, which is the great commandment? What's the great commandment in, all the, in the law of Moses here? And Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Everything you have know up to this point that has been written and been taught in the synagogues and everything else you've been learning, all of that is the all nice and comfy little package, little deal for you to simply remember, love God with all your heart and soul and mind and love others, your neighbors as of yourself. That's a personal responsibility you need to take because once you've learned it, once you understand it, you must apply it to your life. It's your personal responsibility to do that. Now, Jesus himself was the only one to ever keep the law perfectly. Either the ten or the two, however you want to look at it, he kept it perfectly. 
He never needed to sacrifice for his own sin when he came to this earth because he had no sin. He came to this earth to die in the sin on the cross, on the cross for the sin of the world because you and I are not perfect. And we could not keep the law perfectly. Even the two, that it's all summarized nice and neat and cozy for you. You and I cannot do that. He is the perfect sacrifice for our sin. It's, it's his obedience of going to the cross which gives credit to those who put their trust and their love in him. It says very clearly in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, For he made him, he, God the Father, made him, Jesus, him, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And then we see in Romans 8, verses 2 through 4, puts it this way. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh... God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on the account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. This is a God's amazing grace laid out right here in front of us. His promise to those, you and I, who are willing to repent and believe on Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. You and I don't have to keep the law or the two great commandments in complete perfection because we're not capable. It's only Jesus who was sinless who died and met that requirement of a holy God. But by putting our trust in Jesus, we are then given His righteousness and made us clean for us to be able to have that relationship and come into the presence of God. Verse 2, now he makes, not only does he say this is God spoke all these things, but notice in verse 2 that the, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. So God is reminding the people who is all powerful. Who is the almighty God that is staring at your, in your face in that cloud and that fire and bringing you through the things? Who is going to about to tell you the law, to tell you what you need to do? He is in the position to tell you exactly what to do. He's God. We don't have, a, we don't have the ability to say, I don't want it. Well, you do. You have the ability to say, I don't want to listen to God. I don't care who, what God says and stuff. I, I live my own life. That's just foolishness, as you know. So God made it very clear to you, I am the Lord your God who lovingly brought you out of bondage, out of the land of Egypt, out of that bondage, out of that suffering that you were committing. Don't forget that. And we see that phrase, I am the Lord your God, five times in this chapter to make sure the people understood who was speaking here and who has the authority behind these commandments that he's lining out? Again, these are not ten opinions. These are ten things that God is telling you and I or telling the Israelites at this time. And the reason is because God wanted to do a mighty work through them. Why? Because he, they were the chosen people at that time to be able to bring and bear witness of the true and living God and invite their neighbors to a trusting God. That was their purpose. I'm going to do a work in you so that you could be a witness for me, to be a light so that it would draw people, your neighbors, to me so that they too could come into the covenant. But the Jews lived in a world of blind and suspicious superstitious nations that worshipped many gods. And it was, they were very, people were very confused at that time. And they understood that because when they were in Egypt, they watched the Egyptians worship multiple gods. And now as they, they live and, and worship and follow the true and living and only God, now everyone else is like, okay, how can you just live for this one God when we worship multiple gods or multiple saints or multiple this or multiple that? There's true, one and true living God. We don't live for multiple saints. We don't live for multiple gods. We don't live for these things. 
because they're, as we will see as one of the commandments, they're idolatry. They're false gods. They're misleading you. They're, they're pulling you away as much as you think they're good. If they don't, if you put them above what, who God is, then you're, it's idolatry. And we will see that in the scriptures here of the warnings. And so the very first commandment, you shall, not, you shall have no other gods before me. See, for the, so the personal responsibility here, the very first personal responsibility is that you have no other gods. There is only one God that you worship, and the only one God that you put in number one position and the one you worship and give and serve and follow. There's no other, period. That's your personal responsibility to make sure you do not get swayed away or be led off to worship any other gods. Because the Jews to worship any other god would declare war on Jehovah and incur his God's wrath upon their life because they've chosen another uh, person or another thing to worship. But a higher priority than, to, uh, to, uh, than God himself. And so there is no, to be no other gods before the sight of the true God in our life. Which means God demands to be more than just added to your life. Oh, so many times I've heard these things. Oh, I just need to have a little bit more God. Like, it's like, a, like you're, you're cooking up something here. And you're adding a little ingredient because it just doesn't seem like things are, things are a little bitter here in my life. So I'll just add a little God and maybe it'll take away the bitterness. It'll be a little sweet. It's not, you're not making him bacon here. You're actually looking to put him number one and there's nothing you can do. You don't add God to your life. It becomes as, that as you come and you devote your life to Jesus for your life, he must be, we must give him all of our life. We must come and just lay all of our life down and it's his life that comes in and replaces our life and gives us life. And the failure to obey this commandment was called idolatry. And it's the challenge. Because we are to flee idolatry. We're to flee it. Anytime something tries to get a hold of it and it causes you to, your attention to divert your time, your money, your energy, your focus, and your priorities, your passion diverts to something or someone else, then you know you're in trouble. You must flee. Set it right. Those lives marked by habitual idolatry will not inherit the kingdom of God. We see that warning in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 10. Ephesians 5, 5, or Revelation 21, Revelation 22. This is a serious thing where you have put idolatry back in or brought that work of the flesh into your life. And it marks and it talks about and represents the old life. Once you're in Christ and you have the new life, you don't go back to the old life and allow the idolatry to creep back in. This new life that you have has set you free from that bondage. And we are not to associate with those who call themselves Christians who are idolaters. 1 Corinthians 5.11, why? As we talked in our youth group on Saturday night, our topic was on uh, relationships and friendships. And we talked about be very careful because the scripture shows us very clearly that those you hang around can corrupt you. Evil, evil can corrupt you. You've got to watch it. So if someone says, I'm a Christian, and they live a, a habitual idolatry, kind of thing, hey, don't have them have any influence in your life. Don't listen to their words. Find someone in your life that is a godly person who you can go to and trust that's going to give instructions through the scriptures only and not their opinions or the worldly ways. The second commandment we see here, it says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. So the second personal responsibility that you and I must keep in mind is we worship only the Lord. Period. We only worship the Lord. 
An idol is this that we start worshiping as a substitute for God. But it's not a God. Because there's only one and true living God. So you're literally putting in your devotion, you're literally worshiping something or someone who is so subservient or so beneath and not even anywhere close or even in, in sight of who God is. Now the second commandment does not forbid making an image of something for artistic purposes. Even God himself commanded Israel to make the cherubim. We see that in Exodus 25 and 26. But he forbids for you or I to make any image in our aiding us or helping us to worship that item. So today we see this lot of this religious plural, uh, pluralism where you, you hear the statement, you worship your God and I will worship my God because both are right. But that's not true. That's very unbiblical and illogical because how can there be more than one God? If God is God and he is infinite, he's a sovereign, he's eternal, He cannot share his throne with another God. He cannot share because also another infinite or eternal or sovereign God. He is the one and only. Now during this period of time, there was a lot of worship tied in because of the pagan places that they came from Egypt and the places they will be interacting as we will see as we study the scriptures there's this 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 worship is so tied to images and people idolize images and when they idolize an image of, of something or some they idolize someone they creep in and it becomes a an, a an idol or becomes a small god in their life Even images in the mind of man as you go out and you're searching and you're watching and you're looking at things that are images that are not real, they're not there, but can create an idolatry type mind of a man. God will not allow us to depict him with any such image nor replace him with any other image or person in an image that would replace him of our focus and who he is. These idol worship of the pagan nations. They got so much into this uh, idolizing images. They even worship at temple prostitutes. They worship the woman's body. They worship fertility uh, rites. They got to a point where they were uh, inhumane in their sacrificing of children in the name of sacrificing to their God. It's demonic. It's very demonic. And it's so subtle. It's just a little trinket. It's a little of this. It's a little of that. It's only this person. It's only this person who represents God. And all these other things that mislead you from who God is in worshiping the true and living God. Even to the point where you can actually worship yourself. Well, you're worshiping, you think you're worshiping God, but you're really not. You're actually worshiping and singing about yourself. And you have to be very careful of that, of what you're worshiping. No wonder the Lord commanded Israel to destroy the temples, the altars, uh, anything that was of idols of those pagans. When they walked in and they took over and occupied the land of Canaan, they were to wipe those out. They were not to even stand or be around because they would possibly have the influence on God's people and that was not to happen. You've got to get rid of them. So if you have something in your house that you idolize and you've got idolizing some images, you've got to get rid of them. There's no debate here. You've got to go cut it, delete it, dump it, put it to the waste. It's just waste. Get rid of it. Don't delay. 
Now, idols love to entice God's people today. And they're always subtle. You can do great things. Let's go for the power and position. And you idolize that. You, you work tirelessly, hours, seven days a week, nonstop, to be able to get that promotion or get the next position or uh, job. I've got enough money. I've met all my needs. God is so faithful. Praise God. Oh, isn't this great? We're going to praise him for these, all the basic needs. But then all of a sudden, money grips you. And says, oh, I need more money. I need more money. If we have more money, then we can buy the boat. And then we can buy this. And we can buy a bigger house. And then more cars. And, we can buy more. and it goes on. And it's so subtle that instead of being content, you look for to, to grow things that are more beyond what God is, is adding to your life. Because you're no longer seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and allowing him to add these things to your life. You stopped seeking for him first, and you're seeking these, this power, this money, this recognition, the success, the material possessions, knowledge, or even other people, where you actually start idolizing and worshiping the people of entertainment and sports. Yeah, I know that cut someone, patch it up, ask God to you know, comfort you right there if, if that cut you just now, but that's the Holy Spirit speaking to you. God is a jealous God. God is a jealous God, and, he's, he's, and he's, he's not envious of these gods that we replace. I assure you, he's not envious of that quarterback. He created that quarterback. Who do you think gave him that a skill and ability of that quarterback? But he knows that all other gods are figments of the imagination and they're not really inexistent. God is expressing his love for his people here. He wants the very best for his people. He loves his people and he understands if they put their eyes and start creating these images and start worshiping someone else or something else, it's going to get them hurt. It's just like a parent. A parent is jealous for their children. A mom is jealous for their children and for their spouse. Don't get in front of the mama bear if you're coming after their children. I, I, that's suicidal. Because they'll take you out. God is a jealous over his beloved ones and will not tolerate competition of us keeping our minds and a focus upon him. If there is someone or something in our, between us and him hindering our worship, he will remove. You're a child of God. He's, our Heavenly Father is going to remove that person or someone or something. God desires and deserves the exclusive love of his people, period. And God is serious about this. Because we see here in verse 5 that he's so serious about receiving the exclusive worship and love that he actually warns him and says there will be punishment, there will be, a, there'll be correction on this who refuse to obey him. Now God doesn't punish the children and the grandchildren for somebody else's sins. We know that in chapter 24, verse 16, in Ezekiel 18:4. But here's the sad consequence of someone who is in sin and not obeying God and going outside of his will. That you can cause consequences that can generate or go from generation upon generation upon generation. Example that's coming to my mind right now is that a woman who says, I will not give up drugs and has a baby and now that baby has drugs in their system and causes problems to that baby physically, mentally. And it will go from a generation upon generation for that baby. Break any of these things, idolatry. Any of these other things that causes problems within the family or within relationships and stuff, it causes a problem from generation upon generation upon generation. Because there's consequences to sin. It never affects just you. It affects everyone around you. Remember, the ungodly ancestors 
can hinder generation upon generation. An ungodly father, ungodly grandparent, ungodly great-grandparent, whatever the study can have a tremendous negative impact on future generations coming and, and being able to pursue God because as they are looking to pursue God, God's getting their attention. People in their lives of, of positions of authority of their father, grandfather, or grandmother says, you don't want that. That's not, who, that's, not, that's not the religion we follow. Or we don't go to church. We never have gone to church. We're not church kind of going people. So just don't even think about those kind of things. Those can hinder generation upon generation of coming to know God. And God's warning them about that. And in John 4, 24, Jesus explains the rationale for the second commandment here. He says, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. So these images and other material things or people that come into your life and have more priority and you're worshiping and you're devoting to them, your time, your money, your energy, whatever that may be, help to worship this, 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 they're, they're denying the fact that God is a God is a spirit and how must we worship him in spirit and truth and not these idols and these images and things that you create. You're trying to put God in a little box or in a little tiny little wooden carved thing or a picture on the wall that says I'm going to worship this, this image. He says, no, no, God is spirit. You, you worship him in spirit and truth, not a man-made item. The third commandment, you shall not take here the Lord, uh, your God, in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So the third responsibility, the third commandment here is honor God's name. We must make the decision personally to honor God's name. If God is the greatest being in the universe, then his name is the greatest name and must be honored. Matthew 6, 9 says the first petition in the Lord's prayer is what? Hallowed be your name. I honor your name. So how can you take his name in vain? How can you lower yourself into a position where you use his name in vulgar language? You're blaspheming God by using his name in vulgar language. Because your name, his name, stands for your character. It stands for his character and his reputation. What you are and what you do. We see that in John 17, verses 6 and, and verse 26. Not only could you blaspheme God and not honor God by using in vulgar, uh, dirt-filled language, which is sin, but we can also not honor God's name when we take God's name and makes a promise or make an oath that you're not even, even thinking about fulfilling. You're making a commandment. Oh, I promise you in God's name, I promise I'll do this. And you know you're not going to do it. It's nauseating to the nth degree to hear politicians say they love God and it's in God and I pray to God and at the same mouth coming out is filth and it comes out things that are completely against the will of God. That third commandment, you're, you're, they're not honoring God's name. Because they're cheapening his name and blaspheming God. And we see that warning in Leviticus 19.12. The fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and and hallowed it. So we see here this, the fourth 
commandment, the fourth personal responsibility for you and I is honor the Sabbath. Now remember, the Sabbath wasn't brought into the New Testament, so let's discuss that a little bit because God commanded here the Israelites and all of humanity to make sure that there was a sacred time devoted completely on him. There had to be a sacred time in their life each and every week, and there had to be a separate time of rest. So not only did you devote that time to God and, and your focus of prayer and studying of word and worshiping and people, but you also had find rest during that period of time. So when God told them to remember the Sabbath, he told them to remember the rest that he did. He was an example. He created in six days, the seventh he rested. He gave us these examples. And it's not, you can't even, he, God is very clear here, and you can't game this. Okay, I'll rest on that seventh day. I'll rest that one day. But all my, everybody else in my family and every, all my servants, even the cattle, they're going to work seven days a week, man, so that I can sit back and rest. No, no, God says no. Everything that is under your uh, area of, of responsibility as a stewardship, as a leader, must all have that time of rest as well. The term Sabbath is derived from a Hebrew verb that means to rest or to cease from work. And it's a more important purpose of that Sabbath is about that rest we have in Jesus as a Christian today. And so God established a pattern. As you study the word, you see patterns that God has. And he established this pattern of Sabbath at the time of creation. And when he rested from his works on that seventh day, God made the seventh day a day of rest for all of, your, of our works. If you remember, it's also a special sign between Israel and the Lord. And there is no biblical evidence that God commanded any Gentile nation to observe the seventh day. It was for his people. Now later, we will see in Deuteronomy chapter 5, a, Moses will associate the Sabbath with the Israel's deliverance from Egypt. And we'll also see this foretaste of the rest that we would enjoy, or they will definitely enjoy, in the promised inheritance. But when they observe this Sabbath, not only will they mark or observe their devotion, their love for God, that's why they do it. They do it out of love for God, that's why they do it. But it was also to be a witness to the pagan neighbors to why they take that day off. Because in the world, you never take a day off. You work, 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 work. You have to make money. You got to get more things, build, build something bigger. You got to have bigger storehouses. You got whatever it may be is your passion that's become an idol. The pagans would look and see that an entire nation of millions of people resting and worshiping their God. That would be a light and draw attention. Now, I know you should, at this point in time, the Holy Spirit is bringing to remembrance to you how do you become a light to your neighbors of how you devote a day to worship God and to come together with God's people and to worship and honor Him and where the rest of the world continues to go play that sport or go do their thing or activity and not even... even spend any amounts of time or energy worshiping God. But it's also for their own welfare. God says, I love you. I, you cannot as a, my, I know I created you. I know how you're built. I created those animals. I know how they're built. They can't run 365 days or in the Jewish count back there, 360. But every day, seven days a week, you just can't keep going because for your own welfare, you must rest, you must sit, you must acknowledge the lordship of Jehovah over time and creation that you're presented with here. You must come to me and find that rest. 
And so God's people assembled on the first day of the week to honor the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We see that in John 20. We see that in Acts 20. We see that in 1 Corinthians 16. But the principle, the principle set here of that one day of seven still stands. We see that in Colossians 2, Galatians 4, and Romans 14. But some Christians are very dogmatic and, and start and they observe only Saturday can be the day of worship. Saturday is the, is the Sabbath. And they become very legalistic and come at you dogmatically to say if you worship on Sunday, then somehow you're sinning. But because we are free to regard all days are given by God. By the grace of God, all days we give our, each and every day we devote our life to God. We devote every day to his will and what his pursuit of what we wanted, what he wants us to do for that day. But when you look at the things and you continue to read through so many times, Sundays really becomes a uh, more appropriate day of worship for all of us. It's the day Jesus rose from the dead, Mark's, uh, uh, book of Mark, chapter 16, verse 9. First day, that's the date that he, he met with his disciples and, 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 saw, and gathered with him on John chapter 20, verse 19. It was the day when Christians gathered for fellowship. We see that in Acts 20, verse 7, in 1 Corinthians 16, 2. Under the law, men... Work toward God's rest. But after Jesus' finished work on the cross, the believer enters into that rest, into the rest, and goes from that rest into him and out of work. It's, it's, it's different than what the Sabbath is speaking of at this point in time. But it was the four the four uh, look toward of what we would find rest each and every day in the presence in our life uh, that we surrender to Jesus. But we are also commanded to work six days. Many Christians should give more leisure time to the work of the Lord. We should have a deliberate way to serve God and advance the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And we must seek God what he has and want us to do. But the scripture is very clear under the new covenant. No one is under obligation to observe a Sabbath day. Colossians 2, 16 and 17 and Galatians 4, 9 through 11. And Galatians 4.10 tells us that Christians are not bound to observe days and months and seasons and years. And the rest is entered because we've come as a Christian. We have come to Jesus and we experience that rest every day that he will give us in him. Not just one day a week. If I had it my, my way, I wish we could gather together together. Uh, as much as we can throughout the week and just worship him and serve him and, and do what he's called us to do. Next, the fifth commandment, the fifth personal responsibility. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. So the personal responsibility, honor your father and your mother. Should I repeat that? Honor your mother and father. Honor your mother and father. Children, honor your mother and father. I think it's really important you remember this one. But the Jews were taught to respect age and their senior citizens. Yes, senior citizens. And we were to do that. We're supposed to honor them. We're supposed to take care of them. They're supposed to look after them. That is a, a way of honoring your father and your mother. And this is wise, this is good, because as you honor your parents, you are building, it's like a building, essential building blocks of a stable and healthy society. 
Anytime someone, the society starts looking at elderly people are just objects of making money and paying taxes, and as soon as they've hit this point, they're just draining the system and they've got to go, you can tell regardless of what they say out of their mouth of, of being a Christian or whatever, they are not honoring the father and mother. They're not looking at how God sees elderly people. Part of society, we must take care of the elderly people. And if the younger generation is consistently at war with the older generation, what is happening is the foundation of society is being destroyed. And we see the uh, devil at work at a tremendous pace in regards to that. And how we treat them today will determine how we will be treated tomorrow when we're in their position. Because we will reap what we sow. Commandment number six, verse 13, you shall not murder. Your personal responsibility is you are not to murder. God determines life. Your personal responsibility is to honor life. And do not go against life. Choose life. Life is a gift from God and only He has the authority to take life. And because we are made in God's image, murder is a direct attack against God. A direct attack against God. Protecting life is the responsibility for you and I individually. It's our personal responsibility to protect people's lives. Because if we don't do that, then what will happen is we will become a very dysfunctioned uh, society because protecting life is the responsibility of every member of society, not just the public officials that we see in Romans 13. We have a responsibility to protect life wherever we see it that God has allows us to be part of. And the issue here is this premeditated murder, which Jesus said could have its beginning in anger. It starts with this bitterness and moves into this anger and malice and wrath, and it comes to a point where the bitterness is spiraling to a point you start thinking about murder. You think about these really bad things about someone, and ultimately when you have something set in your heart and your mind and the enemy or opportunity comes your way and when they're crossed, watch out, that's what's going to happen. It will actually physically play out. We're to stop those thoughts in our minds. We are to repent of those thoughts in our minds and we must remember we are to love others, not to hate, not anger. The Jews were allowed to defend themselves. Exodus 22.2, we're allowed to defend ourselves. And the law made concessions for accidental death, but murder was a capital offense if it was premeditated. Jesus carefully explained the heart of this commandment in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 through 26. And he showed that it also prohibits us from hating someone else. That is a, a it falls under this, this commandment of you, you will, shall not, you cannot, uh, you shall not murder. Because we can wish someone to dead in our hearts, yet never have the nerve to actually commit that, de that uh, devilish act. Verse 14, the seventh commandment, that seventh personal responsibility is you shall not commit adultery. Personal responsibility. Do not commit adultery, period. Clearly, it's an act itself is condemned. It is condemned completely. There is no negotiations about having another relationship with another woman who's married. God allows no justification for the ways that many often seek to justify extra, extramarital affairs or any kind of extramarital sex. It is not to be done, and when it is done, it is sin and it damages society. And a family. Adultery was so serious in this time, it was considered a capital crime. We see that we'll see that in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, and Deuteronomy 22, 22. Like many of these sins, many of these things that God is telling us you shall not, starts with the desire in the heart. A desire in the heart that lines up with opportunity. 
And adultery will rob. It will rob the person's commitment to themselves and to those who he's supposed to be committed to. Now the Lord can forgive the sin of adultery. But like David, the adulterer and the adulteress must live with the sad consequences of the forgiven sin that he had to face. And we see that in 2 Samuel 12 and Psalm 51. The family is the basic unit of a nation. It's the foundation and building block of this nation. And faithfulness to marriage and how God defines marriage between a man and a woman, that is a contract is made and is part of the foundation of the family. And when you mess with that foundational element of a family, when the marriage is not right or there's adultery in the marriage, it will erode the family unit and society. It's like a cancer and it will spread from generation upon generation upon generation within that family. The New Testament clearly condemns idolatry. In Galatians 5.19 it says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are what? Adultery, fornication, uncleanliness, and licentiousness. This is clearly condemned by God then and today. The Eighth Commandment. You shall not steal. So the personal responsibility, no stealing. No stealing whatsoever. It's a commandment that is given here because if you steal someone else's properties and steal something else, then you're, again, it's a foundational building block of human society. We have been a given an established right to personal property. God has clearly entrusted certain possessions to certain individuals and other people or states are not permitted to take the property without due process of the law. We cannot steal from God as well. What God says is His is His and if you take that or restrain it or keep it from Him, you're stealing from God Himself. And God demands we honor him in this way with our financial resources. Malachi 3, verses 8 through 10 says we are to give our tithe. If we don't give our tithe, we're stealing from God. But we can also refuse him and not be obedient and, and serve him in the way he's calling us to do. And if we don't serve the way he's calling us to serve, and we don't do what he's called us to do, then we're stealing from God. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, but with precious blood of Christ. You were purchased. And as you were purchased and you were brought into the family, their Heavenly Father has complete say in what we do and with what we, he gives us in our lives. Because we were bought with a price. We see that in 1 Corinthians 6.20. We were bought with a price. Therefore, glory, uh, glory is given to God in our body and our spirit, which are God's. Everything we do with our body is to glorify Him and do what He's called us to do. But Ephesians gives us a solution to stealing. Ephesians 4.28 says, Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. There's only three ways to, have, to get money, to have things. We work for it. That's what God's called us to do, is to work. Or it was given to us. Or you stole it. And the stealing is sin. It's wrong. Stop it. God, go to God and ask and, and repent of that. Ninth commandment. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. So personal responsibility, no lying. Speak the truth. 
Honor your promises. Why? Because if it's a society filled with lies and filled with empty promises, it will erode society that we see it happening today. To lie in court is to undermine the very law itself, which is explained why Moses required witnesses to be the executioners and capital crimes. We see that in Deuteronomy 17, 6 through 13. You want to be a false witness, then you're also going to be the one that's going to kill them. It is one thing to lie, but quite something else to kill in order to protect your lie. And how clear that has been in our society recently. This also, this commandment, prohibits you and I from slandering people. And there's lots of scriptures about that as well. The New Testament puts it simply. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds. Colossians 3.9 So lying, false representations, belong to the old man. That has been dead and gone. Don't pick it back up. The new life in Christ, that's not who you are. Oh, trust me, Satan is always there to try to encourage you to lie. We see that in John 8, 44 and Acts 5, 3. So Satan is right there trying to get you to go back to the old ways. Even Jesus himself, him going to the cross was the result really of, of being a victim of a false witness, wasn't he? He was always accused of something that he did not do. The tenth commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's house and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. So the tenth and final commandment here in personal responsibility is no coveting. No coveting. Covetous people will break all of God's commandments in order to satisfy those desires of coveting for something of someone else's. Because at the heart of that sin is one that is so selfish that you will be willing to fulfill whatever that desire is that could break every single commandment. Because the covenant, it feeds on the inward desires of something that God says is sinful. The word covenant means to pant after. I got, I got to have that. So the Ten Commandments here ends with a, this emphasis on being a good neighbor. To love our neighbor as yourself. Because if we love our neighbors, we won't covet what they have. We won't steal from them. We won't lie about them. Or do anything that God prohibits in his word. That's why love is the fulfillment of the law, Romans 13, verses 8 through 10. But only God can change the heart of a sinful heart. God gives us the love we need to obey Him and to care for others. We see in Galatians 5 and Romans 5. That we can change biblically as we study the Word and meditate on the Word and, and talk to Him about the things that God is revealing and revealing your heart. You are to repent and to willing to change because God reveals of those things that need to change in your life. Are you taking those steps going forward to, to live a life that is honoring and, and, and pleasing to God? Because Hebrews 13.5 says, Let our, your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself, it says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He's going to provide for you everything you need.
And this last commandment is so closely connected to the first commandment because it's about the heart, is it not? For this, you know that no covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of God, of, of Christ and God. Ephesians 5.5. 5. It's a very important thing that you and I are to take note of. Because Jesus himself had a special warning about covetousness. We see it in Luke 12, 15, where he explains the very core philosophy of the covetous heart. He said to them, take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of things he possesses. Learn that early on in your life. Oh, it'll save a lot of heartache for you all. For a time perspective, I'm going to end right there on verse 17, and we'll be picking back up in the remaining of the chapter.